Uh, we're going to be in First uh, Corinthians. If you want to turn in your Bibles, we'll get started in our, our time in God's Word today. A message called The Message of the Cross. Um, as we've been studying this uh, for a few weeks now, Paul has been addressing the church, um, preparing uh, them for uh, for some correction, for, for having to address some issues. Last week, Paul began to address the all-important issue uh, of unity in the church and how important that uh, is. And I received many comments uh, about that, uh, that message of unity and um, uh, and uh, just the recognition of how, how important that is in the, the church. And unity is an automatic thing that comes to us because we are we being many are one body in Christ, right? And individually members of one another. That just comes to us through our relationship with Jesus Christ. But but we can either uh, harm that unity or or we can keep that unity through our actions and our attitudes. And the the Corinthians were harming it because they were allowing divisions in the church. And there's probably you know no. Uh, church on the planet that doesn't have some sort of vis- uh, division, even if it's just between a few people, right? That's just because of human nature. But the Corinthians were having divisions over doctrine and divisions over the different uh, leaders that they were following. And Paul pinpointed the issues and he, he called them back to unity, exhorting them to be perfectly joined together. Remember he said that? You need to be perfectly joined together. Think about like a puzzle, right? We All the pieces come together perfectly. You ever try to put a piece of a puzzle? It's not quite there. We've done a few puzzles over the time. Right? You, it looks like it could fit, but not quite until you find another one that's more perfect. That's what he envisions for the church. We come together uh, perfectly. So Paul is addressing that issue, but in order for his correction to be effective, um, it's going to be necessary for Paul to lay down uh, the, the doctrinal foundation beneath that. I told you at the beginning, the introduction of this whole study, that that's what Paul would be doing, that when you're dealing with heart issues, they are doctrinal issues, that you have to go back to the Word of God. And it might seem kind of basic what he goes back to here as he looks at the cross and the message of the cross because he's trying to address the root issue. And what is the root issue here? It is pride. It is selfishness. They have quarrels and fights. And we looked at James last week, didn't we? And James says that quarrels and fights that that are among you, where do they come from? They come from within you. They come from inside yourself, from your desires for pleasure. So so he is going to need to address the heart because the problems originate uh, there. And to do that, he tackles the subject of, of all things, wisdom. Wisdom. Now, why does he uh, sort of look at the idea of wisdom? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. Uh, one is, is Paul is in Corinth. He's writing to the Corinthians. There, uh, It's in, in Greek, Greece, and the Greeks uh, loved wisdom. They loved it. In fact, what is the love of wisdom? Philosophy, right? That's what philosophy means. Philosophy, right? It's, it's, it's the love of wisdom. And uh, the Greeks had many philosophers, and they were attempting to answer the questions of life using observation uh, and things like that, rather than uh, religion or myth or even trying to do away with superstition. Um, and it was all an attempt to answer uh, things about life using man's wisdom. And they had many philosophers. And what people tended to do was to sort of align themselves with the philosopher that was their favorite. They would line up behind that 
uh, that person. And, and so there were many factions in, in Corinth. And here in Corinth, the Christians are doing the same thing in the church. They begin to align themselves behind certain leaders and they're creating factions in the church. And so Paul is going to address the issue and he's going to use wisdom. Um, it's not about uh, aligning yourself with the one you think is the widest, wisest or the smartest or who has the best philosophy. He's got to knock that down. And the reason is, is because a man's wisdom is inferior to God's superior wisdom. Now, this is a, a fundamental truth. Christians need to get this uh, uh, at the very beginning from conversion. They need to understand um, that, that God's wisdom is greater than man's. We might understand that, but do you understand the, the, the opposite then? That means you have no need of man's philosophy. If you understand that God's wisdom is greater um, and you accept that, you have no need of man's philosophy. In fact, it can be harmful, detrimental to you. I want to remind you of Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul is writing to the, the church in Corinth, and he, uh, sorry, in Colossae, and he's re, re, uh, reminding them and warning them about that danger. He says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. As what Paul is saying is that if you are going to accept man's wisdom, man's uh, philosophy, you're really being cheated. They're, they're cheating you. They're touting man's philosophy as something greater than God's wisdom. Man's wisdom being greater than God. And if you accept that, you're actually being cheated. He says, don't let anyone cheat you into thinking that. They deceive you. Don't go there because it's all formed upon the basic principles of the world. And human philosophy has absolutely nothing to offer believers in Christ. Yet, Christians today still try to find something, some kind of meaning or guidance or help or uh, purpose in, in just about anything else in the world other than God's word. Or they might try to add uh, human ideas and insights to scripture that are human, humanistic in, in themselves. But really, scripture stands alone. Um, it's in itself sufficient. Uh, we looked at that last week. All scriptures God breathed, right? Useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's, that's sufficiency of scripture in everything. Psalm 119, verse 160 says, The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. The entirety of your word is uh, truth. It's, it's righteous. It endures forever. Human philosophy has long been the enemy of divine revelation. They don't go together. And that is what Paul is trying to teach the Corinthians today. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about it. He said, The whole drift toward modernism that has blighted the church of God and nearly destroyed its living gospel may be traced to an hour when men began to turn from revelation to philosophy. Interesting, isn't it? When man began to say, well, well, man's philosophy's got something to offer here. What happens is it takes you away from God's revealed truth, his divine truth, which endures forever. Now, Paul has already sort of begun to attack, attack uh, man's wisdom. He sort of 
broached that subject there in verse uh, 17 in, uh, of, of chapter 1 here. Last week we looked at this. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So Paul says that he's been sent to preach the gospel and that wisdom has nothing to do with it. I've come to give you divine truth, and I'm not going to add man's wisdom to it. I'm not going to add eloquency of words to it. In fact, if he tried to infuse eloquent wisdom to that message, it would empty the cross of its power. Pretty, pretty powerful what he's saying here. So why? Why is that the case? What is the power of the cross and what is its message? That's what we're going to look at today. So, read with me. We're going to look at verses 18 to 25 to find out the message of the cross. Beginning of verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's pray. God, we do thank you so much for this time in your word. And Lord, we recognize the beauty and the power of your word. And we recognize, Lord, that as we open your word and we begin to read the words and we begin to study the words that your spirit is active. The word of God is living and active. And so, Lord, we just pray for the activity of the Holy Holy Spirit to be active in our hearts today, Lord. We want to hear from you. We recognize the divine truth trumps human wisdom. And Lord, we so need to hear from your truth today. So guide us into that truth today by your Holy Spirit and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the message of the cross, just a simple outline, three points from that today. The the first being this, the message of the cross, what it does is it divides the human race. That's the first point that he's going to make. It divides the human race. And that is very clearly seen in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, first of all, he says the message of the cross. Message is that word uh, logos, which we looked back uh, in verse uh, five, I believe, that uh, was translated there or um, as, as utterance, uh, means speech, but literally means word. It's the same word there, message, logos, word. So what is the word? What is the message of the cross? Well, the cross is the gospel, isn't it? I mean, that, that's, that's the message of the cross. It's God's plan and provision uh, for man's redemption. And Paul says that plan of God is foolishness. The wisdom of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Now, foolishness is this word. It's morea, 
morea, it does mean silliness <laughs> or absurdity. It's uh, morea is where we get the word moron from. So it's moronic uh, to those who have elevated man's wisdom. Um, when, when man's wisdom is reigning, then the wisdom of God seems foolish. That's the idea. When, when, when you think you know better, your higher ways are higher, then God's ways are always going to seem foolish. But the word, the message of the cross, is that salvation's freely granted by God's grace and not human merit or, or intellect. It's salvation is extended to all people, all people, um, good or bad in your sight, right? Which levels the ground at the foot of the cross. And everyone comes to God through faith based upon the work of Jesus Christ. That one way. And that offends man's pride. That's the basic message of the cross. And it offends man. Because every false religious system base, bases man's acceptance by God uh, by uh, according to human effort. Some sort of human uh, wisdom. Man's wisdom. But Paul says that that strips the, the cross of its pow power. Human wisdom just cannot understand the cross. Peter is a great example. Peter's theology, if he had one theology about the Messiah, had no room in it for a crucified Messiah, did he? You might remember in Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 and 22, we're told this, From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. See, Peter's human wisdom and his human understanding had no place for a cross in it. He could not imagine uh, what that would or could accomplish. His wisdom was contrary to God's wisdom. And let me tell you, if your wisdom is contrary to God's wisdom, in fact, anything contrary to God's wisdom is then uh, a work of the enemy. It's, it's a work of Satan. And that's exactly what Jesus says to him in Matthew 16, 23, the very next verse. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. That's exactly what he was saying. Your mind is set on the things of man. You're using human wisdom. And if you're using human wisdom, you work for Satan. I know it seems harsh, right? He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. But that's what he was doing. You're not mindful of the things of God. You've got to elevate your mind to the things of God. He was only mindful of man's wisdom. And the Corinthians, you know, they were... Considered saints, but they were struggling with their tendencies toward elevating man. Uh, you being, using human wisdom and so doing have created division in the church. And Paul wants to remind them first that there is a division and God's wisdom creates division. And it is the only real division and it's created by the message of the cross. Did you see the two groups there in verse 18? Paul divided the human race into two groups, those that are perishing and those that are being saved. There is the great divide. If you want to talk about divisions, oh, they exist. Here's where it exists. You're either today, wherever you sit today, in one of those two groups. Those that are perishing, oh, those that are being saved. I pray 
you're in the group of those that are being saved. Those that are perishing are in the process of perishing. The word literally means being destroyed. And they're in that process now because they stand guilty as sinners before a holy God because they've rejected the message of the cross. And, uh, and they've said that's foolishness. That's, that's foolishness. And so he says they're perishing. They're on that broad path that leads to destruction. And it is those who are perishing who, who think the message of the cross is foolishness. Uh, those that are being saved um, are, are already saved in a sense, right? We're already saved in, in one uh, sense because we know uh, our eternal destiny is, is made secure um, because we've accepted that message as truth and not foolishness. Uh, but we're being saved. We're in the process of salvation because we won't truly be realized. It won't really be fully realized until uh, we've received glorified bodies. But we are saved. And those being saved understand that the cross was where real power was demonstrated. Now, this is a very interesting thing. and I do want to point it out. Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness to the one group, to those who are perishing. So you would think he would say, but it's wisdom to those who are being saved. But he doesn't use wisdom because foolishness and wisdom, right? The opposite of folly is wisdom. He says it's power. He doesn't say wisdom. Now, why does Paul use power instead of wisdom? Here's what I think. I think Paul had used the word wisdom here. Then the Corinthians, okay, who were already, uh, uh, you know, inclined to elevate man's wisdom, they might get the idea that the gospel then is really nothing more than a philosophical system, a set of ideas, uh, maybe a wiser system that stands over the, the folly of other lesser systems, but a system nonetheless. And he does not want to give them that impression. It is not a system of ideas. If you have thought today that what Christians believe in is just a, a system of ideas, you're terribly, terribly wrong. The Bible does not communicate that. In fact, hopefully, you'll see very clearly today, it's the opposite. Paul doesn't use the word wisdom. He says, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Where human wisdom utterly fails to deal with the human need, God takes action and uses power. He doesn't use wisdom. We're unable to deal with sin. We're unable to reconcile ourselves to God. We cannot do that through wisdom. Human folly and human wisdom are equally unable to achieve what God has accomplished on the cross. D.A. Carson uh, says this, The gospel is not simply good advice, nor is it good news about God's power. The gospel is God's power to those who believe. The place where God has supremely destroyed all human arrogance and pretension is the cross. All of man's emotional, physical, mental, social needs, problems, all those things, they're all issues of the heart. They are sin issues. And the Bible deals with that. The cross deals with that. But this is what's sad. Many Christians today have turned to man's wisdom to deal with those types of, of issues, okay? It's called psychology, psychology. Um, uh, it, somehow, Christians have bought into the lie that, that psychology is the realm of the experts. The psychologists have uh, the answers. After all, they are the, the trained experts. They're the ones with the degrees. 
And what you have to understand is this, that psychology is not a science. Um, it's not a uniform body of scientific knowledge like organic chemistry, right? Like you could just go study organic chemistry. Why in the world do you want to do that? I have no idea. But that's just this body of knowledge. Psychology is not that. It is actually a complex collections, collection of different ideas and theories, which oftentimes contradict one another. If you were to study psychology and the history of psychology and psychologists, you would see that. They don't even uh, agree. What is psychology? The study of the soul. That's what psychology means, the study of the soul. Can I just ask you, what, what could an unbeliever possibly know about the soul? Psychology of the soul. It's based on godless assumptions and evolutionary foundations, psychology is. It cannot know anything about the soul. Secular psychology only deals with people on a superficial, temporal level. They can identify something as a, as a symptom and say, oh, that's this. But they don't have no idea how to deal with it at the heart. The father of modern psychology, Sigmund Freud, was an unbelieving humanist. And he, he devised psychology as a, as a substitute for religion. That's, that's what he came up with. Uh, he just did not want to deal uh, with religion or have anything to do with religion. He thought that he could fix all the problems of man through man's wisdom. The basis of modern psychology today can be summarized by, by these ideas I'm going to read to you in this list. It's all, all rooted in, in Freudian uh, humanism here. And it's uh, this, this basic list. This is it. If you were to go to psychology today, they would go into, a psychologist today, they would go into it with this understanding of humanity. I just want you to see, does this match up with what the scripture says? Human nature is basically good. There's a starting point. Human nature is basically good. People have the answers to their problems inside them, right? Somewhere inside you, you've got the answer to fix you. And so I'm going to sit with you and have you pay me $150 an hour so I can find out what's hidden inside of you. Or the key to understanding and correcting a person's attitudes and actions lies somewhere, somewhere in that person's past. Individuals' problems are the result of what someone else has done to them. Human problems can be purely psychological in nature, unrelated to any spiritual or physical condition. Deep-seated problems can be solved only by professional counselors using therapy. And finally, scripture, prayer, and the Holy Spirit are inadequate and simplistic resources for solving certain types of problems. That is the basis for modern psychology today. And it flies in the face of Scripture, and it flies in the face of everything Paul is describing here today. The Bible has the answers because the Bible has the power. The power is in the Word. The power was demonstrated on the cross. That's what Paul is saying. It's centered on the gospel, the cross. Romans 1.16 says, I am, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. That's where power was demonstrated on the
the cross. It has the power to truly 100% regenerate a human being. And there's no other such power on the face of the planet. But Paul begins here with the message of the cross. You want to talk about divisions, people. He says, I'll tell you, there is a great division. It happens through the cross. The message of the cross divides the human race. The second thing the message of the cross does is it destroys human wisdom. Obviously, I've been talking about that a bit here, but this is where he really gets into it with a great example. It destroys human wisdom. Look at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Paul, in verse 19 here, is quoting from Isaiah 29, verse 14. Now, I'm going to have you turn there because I do need you to see, he only quotes part of the verse. I want to show you the whole verse. But I also want to show you the context from which this verse comes and why Paul uses it. Isaiah 29, verse 14. We want to look at this. Why is Paul using this this reference? Isaiah 29, verse 14. Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths, I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong thing. Next verse. Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. I was reading verse 13 right before that to begin with. But verse 14 there says uh, that part that he quotes, there's the second half. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. But notice what he says at the beginning of it. He says, I'm going to do a marvelous work among the people. I'm going to do a marvelous work, something that's a a wonder, a a miracle is what he's saying. I'm going to do something pretty fantastic. I'm going to destroy their wisdom. (laughs) That's what he's saying. So why is Paul referencing this? Well, when Isaiah made this prophecy, Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, was was about to to conquer Judah. He was making plans to conquer uh, Judah. And the reason is the Jewish politicians, they knew of the threat of Assyria, they knew of that power, and they sought to ensure their safety, the safety of Israel, uh, from the threat of the Assyrian invasion by making an alliance with Egypt, of all places. And what happened is it backfired. What their alliance did is it so alarmed Assyria that it sparked the invasion that they sought to avoid. And so Sennacherib sends his, his chief of staff to bring a message to King Hezekiah in Jerusalem regarding uh, the futility of his alliance with Egypt. And it's a few chapters later. So that's why I took you to Isaiah 29. Turn ahead to Isaiah chapter 36. It's still in the context of what's taking place here historically. Isaiah 36, verse 4. Here's his chief of staff, Sennacherib's chief of staff. Then the Rabbishchikeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this in which you trust? I say you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him." So what Sennacherib is doing here is he's mocking Judah's alliance with uh, Egypt. 
Um, he's saying it's an exercise in futility. And Isaiah is, is told by the Lord that, that, that the king Hezekiah would be saved and all his people would be saved, but it wouldn't be by their own wisdom. It wouldn't be through their own power. It would have nothing to do with their alliance through Egypt. How did God choose to save them? Well, it happens in verse uh, 36 of chapter 37. So go one chapter further. Chapter 37, verse 36. This is how God chooses to defeat Sennacherib's army. Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home and remained at Nineveh. Pretty amazing. (laughs) Using, um, Using man's conventional wisdom and strategies, Hezekiah and his people form an alliance with with, uh, Egypt, but God single-handedly saved them and he destroyed the Assyrian army in one night by one angel. God promised to fight for Israel. All they needed to do was trust him and obey him, which they had a problem doing, uh, and so do we. So why does Paul use this example? Why does he quote 29.14? Because man continually tries to solve his own problems through conventional wisdom and power. They, they continually fall upon their own efforts. And they only end up hindering God's work and what he is trying to do. Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 9 says this about those wise men. The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? Notice what he says there. If because they rejected the, the word of the Lord, what kind of wisdom do they really have then? The answer being, well, they don't have any. If men reject the wisdom of the Lord, they have human wisdom. That's the answer. Human wisdom. Do you remember how James describes human wisdom? We looked at this verse last week. James chapter 3, verse 15, I think we looked at it. But this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. That's the wisdom that James speaks of. It's human wisdom. It doesn't descend from above. It doesn't come from God. It's earthly. It's sensual. It's demonic. It's earthly. It's limited to earth, sensual or or natural. That means it's based on human desires and standards. And then where does it come from? It's demonic. It's generated by Satan and his forces. That's the wisdom of man. Look at verse 20 of our passage now. Go back to 1 Corinthians. So we just quoted Isaiah 29, 14. And then in verse 20, he says, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? It seems that Paul's mind has remained in Isaiah a bit because he's quoting Isaiah again here. Isaiah uh, 19.12 is where he gets, Where is the wise? And Isaiah 33.18 is where he gets, Where is the scribe? And then he says, The disputer, which is a unique word. It's only here in the New Testament, and it uh, means debater. But what, what's he really asking here by putting these three things together? He's asking, what has human wisdom really brought us? What has it really done? Um, because you've got God's wisdom saying to the, to the Israelites way back in Isaiah, right? I'm going to do a wonder. I'm going to do something marvelous. I'm going to destroy your wisdom. <laughs> I'm going to show you when you rely on your wisdom, it doesn't get you to where. But when you trust in my wisdom, my power, then I accomplish uh, things. So then he says, so really, where has is, where is man's wisdom gotten us today? Look at our world today. How much further along are we 
using man's wisdom. In fact, I can't say it any better than this quote I found from John MacArthur. Um, listen to this. It's, it's pretty brilliant. He says this, uh, speaking of those, those questions he just asked, he says they're asked from each one, where are all the smart people that have the answers? How much closer to peace is man than he was a century ago or a millennium ago? How much closer are we to eliminating poverty, hunger, ignorance, crime, and immorality than men were in Paul's day? Or our advances in knowledge and technology and communication have not really advanced us. It's from among those who are intelligent and clever that the worst exploiters, deceivers, and oppressors come. We are more educated than our forefathers, but we are not more moral. We have more means of helping each other, but we are not less selfish. We have more means of communication, but we do not understand each other any better. We have more psychology and education and more crime and more war. We have not changed except in finding more ways to express and excuse our human nature. Throughout history, human wisdom has never basically changed and has never solved the basic problems of man. Man's wisdom has really never changed anything. It can't solve life's problems and men have the same struggles today. And what is the basic struggle? What is the basic problem of man? It's sin. It's sin. In fact, look back at verse 20 again. He, he says, where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? What do all those people have in common? They're the perceived experts, right? They're the perceived professionals, the ones that you uh, should go to um, in time of need. And the truth is, if you wanted to deal with the basic problem of man today, the problem of sin, and you were to gather all the experts of the world into a room and tell them to come up with a plan to, to handle the problem of the sin of man, not in a million lifetimes would you have come up with the plan of salvation that God did. It's, it's impossible. We would, we would complicate it because it's just too simple. We'd make it inequitable. It's not even for everybody. Maybe make it some sort of a layaway salvation plan, something you kind of set off in stages. Maybe it's something you approach in, in phases we like our phases today with the pandemic here, right? We just wouldn't accomplish it. God's plan is so utterly simple and yet profound that it destroys man's wisdom. Listen to John Stott. I know I've read this to you before, but this quote, the first time I read it years ago, it's always stuck with me. He says this, this is the plan of salvation. God's own great love propitiated his own holy wrath through the gift of his own dear son, who took our place, bore our sin, and died our death. In short, God himself gave himself to save us from himself. Would man have come up with that solution? Not in a million lifetimes. It's not that man is simply not smart enough to come up with a plan of salvation. God is not simply disregarded the wisdom of the world or shown it to be foolish, as the passage here says in verse 20. He has made it foolish. Look at verse 20 again. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? He's made it foolish. How so? How did God make the, the wisdom of the world uh, foolish? Well, verse 21 gives us the answer. For since in the wisdom of God, 
the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. That's a little confusing, I know, so let's kind of backtrack and look at that. Not only did the wise scholars and philosophers fail to understand, okay, it's not just that, but God in his all-wise providence, he worked it out that way. God has decreed it to be so. It's God himself who ensures that the world, in its wisdom, cannot know God. You cannot know him through wisdom. God's wisdom ensures that can't be possible. Why? I think it's not hard to understand why when you consider our fallen world and um, our fallen state and our hearts. In this fallen world, human wisdom, in, in the sense that we've described it here, it's, is deeply idolatrous, isn't it? It's founded on human pride. It makes an idol of ourselves and our humanness and our wisdom. And so let me ask you, how can then idolatrous attempts to sort of subjugate God be rewarded with, oh, let me, let me show you more of myself? It can't happen that way. God himself has ensured that it cannot be. And so God himself has established then the utter folly of the wisdom of the world. God now does something amazing. He did determine that some men and women would come to know him, but through a means totally unexpected uh, by the wise people of the world. And it wasn't through philosophy. It's not through intellectual understanding or human wisdom. What did he choose to use instead? It said, the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. He chose to use the foolishness of the message preached. Now, the message preached isn't foolishness, but in the eyes of the world it is, right? Because he already introduced that as foolishness in verse 18. But the foolishness of the message preached. The message preached is uh, one word in the Greek. It's kerugma. Kerugma, and it means proclamation. It doesn't refer to the act of proclaiming a message, but the content of the message. What's the message? It's the message of the cross. That's the message that is preached there. So, in short, Paul's points here. All right. Paul says that this message of this cross, the message that the Corinthians listened to and by which were saved, first of all, divided the human race into two groups and then destroyed human wisdom. You cannot know God through wisdom. In fact, Paul didn't get them to know God through wisdom, and he'll, he'll remind them of that later on in this chapter. In fact, chapter 2, he'll talk more about that. But what else does it do? It, it dis uh, sorry, displays God's power. That's the third thing. It divides the human race it destroys human wisdom, and it displays God's power. Look at verse 22. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. We return now to those two groups. Remember the two groups, the divided humanity, those that are perishing, those that are being saved. Those that are perishing are doing so ultimately because of unbelief. Ultimately, it comes down to unbelief. They chose to look at the message of the cross as foolishness. Okay, now unbelief is expressed in different ways, isn't it? And that's what Paul's looking at. There's different ways unbelief is expressed. And back then, the Jews and the Greeks had different issues there. The Jews 
What was their uh, issue? The Jews requested a sign. They wanted some sort of miracle, something that would prove, uh, particularly when Jesus was there, that he, were, he was the Messiah, right? Now, Jesus did all kinds of miracles. We went through the Gospel of John last year. You saw that, right? All the time he was doing, he was doing miracles. But when he was confronted by the scribes and the Pharisees, and they said, okay, here right now, we want you to do this, uh, he refused to do so. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 39, this is what it says. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, why would Jesus object? You would, you would wonder that, right? Wouldn't such requests give him the opportunity to display his power, right? If he really is the Messiah and they come to him and they confront him and say, all right now, do something right now. Prove yourself to me that you're the Messiah. Why would he not, why would he not um, acquiesce to that request? He, he decides instead to not accommodate them. Now, on one level, he does do that, doesn't he? He does accommodate our, our um, unbelief. He does perform miracles that ought to elicit faith. He certainly did that to many people while he walked this earth. But there's another kind that puts the person in the driver's seat. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and some want to see Jesus perform a miracle so they can evaluate him, assess his claim, right? Look through his credentials. Um, they want to be the ones in charge. And I think as long as people are assessing him, um, they're in the superior position. They place themselves in position as judge. You do these things for me, and I will judge whether or not you are true and worthy of my worship. And I think as long as they're checking out his credentials, they're forgetting that's God who will be checking out theirs. It's God who will judge them. And so to the Pharisees, he says, I'm not going to give you any sign, but there is going to be a sign. There's going to be one sign that will be done. And in fact, I'm so gracious, I'm going to tell you what it's going to be. It's the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, what was the prophet Jonah? He was three days, three nights in the belly of a, of a whale. And so Jesus would be in the heart of the earth and he was going to die and be buried three days, three nights, but then he would rise again from the dead. He said, there's going to be a sign, that sign, that's going to be the one sign. That sign will be the sign that carries uh, for the proclamation of the cross for eternity, for the rest of time. That's the sign we go to. We don't have to go to you and say, well, Jesus walked on water and uh, he fed 5,000. He did all these things. All we need to do is say, Jesus died for your sins. He was buried, but he rose again. That's the sign. That is the sign. He said, you will get that sign. That sign I give to everyone. That sign I give to all people. And through that sign, people will come to know me. But when people say, no, you do something for me. That's the prototype of every uh, condition that humans raise as barriers to be open to God. Uh, it's, 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 I'll believe God if. You ever heard that phrase? Right? I'll, I'll believe God when. When I see this, when he does that, then I will believe in him. You know, turn to Luke chapter 16 because Jesus addresses this issue. And I just want to take a moment to, to, to look at this. He tells an amazing parable about, about a rich man and a man named Lazarus who was poor. I'm just going to read through this parable here, uh, but um, in Luke chapter 16, beginning verse 19, he wants to address this whole idea um, of, of wanting, uh, wanting proof, right? 
do something for me. Let me see something miraculous. That's how people come to faith, right? That's, that's how it happens. But Paul has set something else up in this passage, hasn't he? He says, no, it's the, the power of the message. It's the power of the cross that changes people. That's the only message people need to hear. But in this parable, in Luke chapter 16, verse 19, it says this, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. See, even in Hades, this man thought that the way that would prove the truth of eternity to his brothers would be send someone back from the dead. That's what's going to do it. And what's Jesus' answer there? You know, that, that's not going to do it. Even if I were to send someone back from the dead, they won't believe because they chose not to believe in the word of God, is what he's saying. Because the human heart has been hardened. They have the same mindset. Oh, if God had just wrote my name up in the clouds, I would believe. You can't approach that uh, God that way. That's human wisdom. You only approach him by responding to the message of the cross. But those are the Jews. Those are the ones that want signs. You don't have to be a Jew today to want a sign, but that, was that, that, that group particularly wanted signs. And maybe you fall into that category today, hoping to see some sort of miracle. Prove it to me, God, that you exist. Maybe you fall into the other category of the Greeks or the, the Gentiles. What do they seek after? Well, they seek after wisdom, he says. And we really already discussed what, what this means. These people don't erect the conditions that God has to meet, but they do something just as arrogant. They... Uh, create entire structures of thought, right? So as to maintain the delusion that they can explain everything. They can explain the universe, the meaning of life. They think they're scientific and in control, uh, powerful. And God, if he exists, he's got to meet their high standards, right? He's got to like bring, bring everything up a bit here. Somehow fit into their system. That gospel stuff, that's just too simple. That's, that doesn't make any sense. It's childish. I'll give him a respectful hearing if he can, if he can uh, sort of rise up to the standards of my own academic prowess. Richard Dawkins is one of those men, isn't he? He says this about faith. Faith is the great cop-out. 
the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is the belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, lack of evidence. See, he thinks people who have a faith in God just don't think. You see what he's saying? They're, they're just not smart enough. They're not as wise as I am. I'm pretty wise. And so um, maybe if they were wise like me, uh, they would see that. That's the problem of man. There's a poem called uh, Invictus, and um, uh, apparently uh, Nelson Mandela, in his years in prison, uh, really this poem was what uh, brought him out, that kept his human spirit alive. But I want you to hear the, the pride and the arrogance of the human uh, strength and spirit of this poem. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now you hear that. It's a direct attack against the narrow path of Scripture. It doesn't matter how straight the gate. It doesn't matter what punishments are on the scroll. It doesn't matter that uh, God apparently wants to punish me. I'm the, I'm the captain. I'm the master. That's the attitude of man. Those are those who really hold to their intellect as all-powerful. So what does Paul say about that? Well, in verse 23, he says, but we preach Christ crucified. <laughs> right? To the Jews, you know, they want the sign. Greeks, you know, they, they just want wisdom. But what we do, we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, foolishness. So we preach Christ crucified. That's the message of the cross. And there's three possible reactions to that. There's two of them here in this verse right, right away. The first is to stumble. Stumble. We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Jews, you know, they stumbled at the cross because the long-awaited Messiah, you know, that he had to come in splendor and, and glory to, to reign, to restore the kingdom to the Jews, right? To put down the, the, the Romans and destroy their kingdom. So they were offended and appalled at the notion of a, a crucified Messiah that caused them to stumble. They knew that God himself had declared that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Remember that from Deuteronomy 21? So how could God's Messiah, the anointed one, be cursed by God? The very idea was a stumbling block. And I think today it's difficult to understand what crucifixion meant to the Jews. Today it's different. We sort of sanitized the cross. We gold-plated it. We put it in jewelry and earrings and around our necks and on buildings and stationery and things, don't we? But that would have been just an unthinkable thing in the first century. Um, crucifixion was a horrible, painful, shameful death reserved for uh, criminals, slaves, uh, barbarians. The, the word was not even spoken of in polite company. And if we want a modern counterpart, that we should have lethal injection needles maybe hanging on a, a chain around our necks or have a sculpture of an electric chair in front of our 
building, right? That's the idea there. It's, it was an instrument of torture and death. I know the thought is silly and it sickens us, but that's what the Jews, that's why they were scandalized by the cross. It was just an unthinkable thing to them. They stumbled here. Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 to 14, Paul says this, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Yes, he was cursed on that tree, but he became the curse for us because we needed it that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. See, they stumbled at that point that, that the Messiah could become a curse, but that's the wisdom of God, isn't it? That was his plan. Rather than man become the curse, rather than man absorb my wrath, I'll have my son become the curse and I'll pour my wrath upon him so that the blessing of Abraham, that promise, would also go out to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. Amazing. But the Jews, they stumble at that. Maybe you stumble at that idea today. Maybe that just seems like a, a crazy uh, notion of a crucified Messiah. Some think it foolish. He said the stumbling block to the Jews, to the Greeks, it's foolishness, folly. There's that, that word again. This is the group that exalts the reason and the philosophy. Um, not faith in a criminal who obviously deserved to die. That's what they did to criminals. So they want God to fit into their minds before they will let him fit into their hearts. Fit here first. I remember, I remember talking to, we had, you know, years of youth ministry and, and one of our youth leaders even, uh, I, I was not quite sure where they were. And I just asked him one day, I said, so why, you know, why did you become a Christian? You know, give me your testimony. He just said, because it just made sense. And I said, oh, okay. You know, I had to get here first is what he's kind of saying. I had to like understand it first. I had to fit into my mind first before get here. That's not how you approach him. It's not something that you have to understand on an intellectual level. In fact, you think about the gospel, it makes no sense at all. Like, why, why would God even choose to save criminals? We're, we're all criminals in his sight, but he chooses to save us because he's a loving and gracious God. But these are the people who think it's foolish. There's a quote from the God delusion, and yes, again, it's Richard Dawkins, but I just use this as an example of the world that thinks it's foolish. He says, there's something infantile in the presumption that somebody else parents in the case of children, God in the case of adults, has responsibility to give your life meaning and point. Somebody else must be responsible for my well-being and somebody else must be to blame if I am hurt. Is it a similar infantilism that really lies behind the need for a God? See what he's saying there? It's childish, right? It's really childish to think that you need somebody else to give your life meaning. Uh, parents, when you're a child, but to have this God when you're adult? Aren't you still being childish? That's what he's saying. Some think that. It's just a foolish notion, a pie-in-the-sky kind of idea. But there's a third response to the message of the cross, and it comes in verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. doesn't matter whether you're, you're coming from the background of a Jew and you want to sign and, and you stumble at that idea. It doesn't come, uh, if you come from the Greek, you're the Gentile, you, you think it's foolish here. Both come the same way. And the third way is believe. Now, I know he doesn't use the word believe here. That's kind of one of my points. He used it back in verse 21. Let me show you that again. In verse 21, he says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who, what? 
believe. So, he saved those who believe. But here, he doesn't say to those who believe, both Jews and Greeks, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He says to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. So why did he say to those who are called instead of believe? This is why. He can't say that it comes to those who believe because the question that follows would have to be, well, how do they believe? That has to be asked because if, if it was God's wisdom that ensured that people through their wisdom could not reach God, he's already made that point, then how do they believe? If you, if you can't reach there on your own, then how do they come to believe? And Paul's answer is they were called. They were called by God himself. And Paul had begun the letter reminding the Corinthians of that very thing. Look at verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. He reminds them of their calling. It is a saving call. It's a call that leads to glorification. Romans 8.30, we looked at this verse, but look at it again. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. This is God's work. What we're doing is we're looking at God's work because man is not in there. You don't see, and then man did this. You just have God. God predestined, God called, God justified, God glorified. That's all the work of God. And that's what Paul is saying here. But to those who are called, the work of God, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now, but from man's perspective, that comes from believing in the message of the cross. Do you see that? Both are there. Both are in this passage. It's through the belief of the message that the world thinks is foolish. Then Paul says, but those are the called. Those are the called. Because even belief, it can't come through intellect. None of us just said, ah, oh, I figured it all out now. It's a work of God. Salvation brings the one who believes to see not foolishness like the world sees, but God's power and his wisdom. And Christ Jesus is both. Did you notice that in that verse? Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. He is both. And then in verse 25, he closes with this. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I love this verse. I call this verse the big if. This is a big if. He is not saying God is fool, foolish and God is weak. He is saying if, hypothetically speaking, if I were to just listen to the world for a moment and agree, okay, let's say God is foolish, right? If God were foolish, his foolishness would be greater than man's greatest wisdom. That's what he's saying. If God were weak, and that's a big weak, if he were weak, his weakness would be stronger than man's greatest strength. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. At the cross, God's greatest power and his greatest wisdom were exhibited. And what it does, it crushes man's pride. Paul is trying to address the Corinthians and their issue of division in the church. And where is he taking them back to? He's taking them back to the cross. What you have to understand, church, he says, is, listen, salvation has come to you through God's wisdom. Yes, you heard the message preached, and Paul will talk more about that. You listened to my words, and I didn't do it with much wisdom and eloquence, right? And you have become 
saved, right? You are now called saints, being sanctified, all of those things he's already reminded them of. And so listen, don't keep incorporated man's wisdom here. You're going back to that and you're bringing division in the church, elevating man's wisdom because he just demonstrated on that cross, that message that you believed in, that man's wisdom, wisdom is worth nothing. It's, it has no value and it contributes absolutely nothing. Christians today, don't be fooled. Don't be beguiled into the belief that because those people with the PhDs and trained in, in those arts, psychology, psychiatrists, and all those things have the answers you need. The Bible has all the answers you need. The Bible deals with every human issue of the heart. And we need not go anywhere else. I want to read you in closing a Christian response to that Invictus poem. If you remember that Captain of Thy Soul poem. This is a Christian response to it. I think this is great. Captain of thy soul, art thou in truth? Then what of him who bought thee with his blood? Who plunged into devouring seas and snatched thee from the flood? Who bore for all our human race but what none but him could bear? That God who died, that man might live, and endless glory share. Of what avail thy vaunted strength apart from his vast might? Pray that his light may pierce the gloom, that thou mayest see aright. Men are as bubbles on the wave, as leaves upon the tree. Thou captain of thy soul, forsooth, who gave that place to thee? Free will is thine, free agency, to wield for right or wrong, but thou must answer unto him to whom all souls belong. Bend to the dust that head unbowed, small part of life's great whole, and see in him and him alone the captain of thy soul. We, uh, we don't want to bend our knees or bow our heads. We don't want to believe that there's someone else that could be the captain of our soul. The message of the cross destroys human wisdom. It makes the man's wisdom look like just foolishness, silliness. The Corinthian church was in danger of infusing man's wisdom into the way it functioned into the way it, it, um, re, they, they interacted with one another. And, and so in our churches today, we just have no, no room for that. The, the cross levels all of us. There's not a wiser person. There's no one better than anyone else in our church. No one's smarter than anybody else. We're completely leveled by the cross. It's a level field. It's destroyed all human wisdom and all pride. That's the point. We must bow the knee, come before the one that showed all power and showed all wisdom on that cross, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the message of the cross, the power of the cross to destroy our pride. Lord, we're all guilty of it. We're all guilty of pride. I'm not picking on any one person in the world, Lord, and, and we were all uh, there as well before we were saved, full of pride, unwilling to come to you, unwilling to bow our knees. I, I know I was the captain of my soul for years. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. And I was going to fit God in whenever and however I pleased. That's just not how it works. When we 
hear the message of the cross and truly believe it, it humbles us. It removes all pride. It makes us realize we truly have no no wisdom and how desperately in need of your truth we are. And Lord, I pray for your church that they wouldn't be tricked and deceived into the philosophies of this world, that they wouldn't be cheated, that they would fill themselves on divine truth. Oh, Lord, your word has all that we need, everything that we need to help us in time of need, which is all the time. Lord, we always need you, and we always need your divine truth. Would you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to remain faithful to you, to see the importance of your word, to eat deeply, drink deeply of your truth, because our soul desperately needs it, Lord. Our world desperately needs it. Oh, we have so many people functioning in this world completely um, clueless as to uh, the, the reality that they truly have no wisdom. They have no understanding of the things that really matter and no ability whatsoever to affect the human heart. But your word does that. And we thank you, Lord. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for what it's done for us, Lord, that it had the power to change a stubborn heart like mine. Thank you for loving us. And thank you for giving us this time today. We pray that your people have been edified. We pray that you will be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.